The Canadian immigration process can be complex and frustrating. With the Canadian Immigration Department making it virtually impossible to speak to an officer, there are few places to turn to for trusted information. The Canadian Immigration Podcast was created to fill this void by offering the latest on immigration law, policy, and practice. Please welcome ex-immigration officer and Canadian immigration lawyer, Mark Holthy, as he is joined by industry leaders across Canada, sharing insight to help you along your way. Right. I am here with uh, my good friend, Lou Dangzelen, who is an immigration lawyer in uh, practicing in Ontario. And we have got the video of all videos for you. This one is all about um, study permits, approvals, and drilled all the way down to the designated learning institution level. So, Lou, how are you doing? How is it in Ontario today? Very foggy where I am at the moment. Very, very foggy. And uh, as with weather conditions, people generally forget how to drive. So watch out, people. Just be very careful. <laughs> Fair enough. All right. So what I wanted to do, Lou, why don't you just tell people a little bit about yourself? Now, I know that you, you know, many, many people who are watching this today probably have are very familiar with who you are. Um, but why don't you give us a little bit of background on, on you? And this is your second foray into Immigration Nation. And we talked previously about DLIs as they are, as they relate to approval ratings from country uh, by country. But um, like, tell us about yourself and how you got into this stuff. Oh, for sure. Thanks for having me. Uh, yes, second time. And uh, thanks for having me back. I am a sociology major by training and I did my master's in sociology and political science. Uh, so there's always been an underlying interest in looking at the big picture through data. And then I got into law school when I moved to Canada. Uh, that desire for understanding the bigger picture never really went away. So I've always been fascinated by stats. And what I've noticed is when I got into immigration, people had certain assumptions about, you know, certain countries having a higher approval rating, for example, or other countries not having that big of a, you know, chance for, for getting your file turned around. So... I was looking for the data sets and uh, couldn't find them anywhere. So I decided to start A-tipping and boy, oh boy, I requested a lot. I, I think I may have gone crazy that night. And um, in the span of, let's say, in the last three years, I've received like constant streams of like data sets from immigration, including uh, per country breakdown since 2007. And the last time I was here, I did the, um, you know, analysis of... Uh, because uh, it's longitudinal data, right? So I was able to do something from 2007 to 2019, and we were able to establish that there's a positive relationship between, uh, you know, the GDP per capita um, of a particular country with its approval rate. Of course, it's not correlational, meaning it, I'm sorry, it's not causal, meaning it doesn't cause it, but it's an interesting relationship nonetheless. So while I was doing that, I also received this, more than 1,000 page uh, document that included approval and refusal rates um, from different countries, but this time it was broken down by DLI. Uh, been sitting in it for maybe over a year now, um, mainly because it's very hard to convert uh, data <laughs> from immigration when they're disclosed, right? And I think it's actually point number one in my next slide. 
Um, yep. But, yeah, you know, all that to say is that we had to uh, convert the data from a PDF into a workable spreadsheet. And then the fun begins. You start the uh, analysis, essentially. You bet. Let's flash up the just the, the, the Excel just for a quick second so people can see what we're dealing with. And um, and then we'll dive into the to the meat and bones here. So you can see, you guys, we're not going to dive into this, you know, at a super, super deep level. But there is a, a lot of, of work that's been put into to building this. And so, um, yeah, this is awesome. And this is a delicate topic, isn't it, Lou? You know, um, because ultimately people are looking for every advantage they can get to succeed with their study permit applications. They they want to know if they're stepping in some, you know, into some areas with landmines, you know, and and there's always been this impression that, um, you know, that certain schools have a greater chance of, of, you know, if you're accepted to those schools of getting your study permit than others. And we'll get into all of that. But one of the things I think right off the bat for Lou and I, we're going to make a big caveat here. And that caveat is that these statistics are just that. There are so many factors at play that result in the statistics that we're looking at that they are not to be taken as any kind of a reflection on any particular school that maybe we're showing as an example. And I'm actually going to pull in Lethbridge College, which is the city where I live, which I went to. I, I played volleyball as a capital, captain on the men's volleyball team at the college, and, and I had wonderful experiences there. It's a phenomenal school. But you'll see how hard it is to get your study permit approved, even in the best of circumstances. So take the statistics with a little bit of a grain of salt, but also pay attention to them uh, because there's a lot that can be learned from it. Now, before we jump in, that was a little teaser, a little intro to those who are watching this. I wanted to shift gears and just um, and just briefly, uh, Lou, just give people a little bit more background and more information on you. So this is in the links in the description. We'll provide the, the connection for... Um, all of these these different resource points that that Lou's going to be talking about here, but this is this is uh, Lou's website. You can go here. There is um, you can book a consultation through this link here. Uh, if you have questions or you're looking for a free assessment, Lou's got this on his website. And then um, you know if you do want more information about what we're talking about today, this isn't something that's going to be released to the general public, and so. If you do have questions, uh, there's an inquiry form that you can reach out and it's subject to, you know, um, <laughs> discretion. And so um, it won't be just released generally to the public. Um, I also want to give everybody a shout out and a heads up right at the beginning um, that uh, Lou's got a, an amazing blog here on, on the site that talks about the statistics and the common reasons for refusal, which we're going to talk about today and then highlight which we'll do at the end as well, is Lou's got a study permit DIY boot camp that you guys are going to want to check out. And um, I think if there's any course that you could take on study permits right now, this would be the one to, uh, to, to do. So definitely go in there and check it out. We'll have links in the description below. And then last but not least, Lou, there are only 361 subscribers on this In Light of All Circumstances podcast slash video cast and you guys need to get your keisters over there and subscribe. As you can see, I am subscribed. This is unbelievable content. And the things that these guys are doing, him and Will, and the special guests that they bring on, right now this whole Chinook system is a major, major um, uh, content producer here for the site. But it's 
this is just, these guys are the up and comers that are, are totally, they're going to be outstripping me very, very soon here. So if you're not subscribed to this channel, you better get over there and do that. Okay. So there you go. That's how we roll here, Lou. So shall we, uh, shall we jump into the, uh, to the slides and, and, and take a look as that sound? Absolutely. Okay. Sounds fun. Let's do it. <laughs> All right. So here we are. Now, I guess one of the things that I want to touch on, you know, as we get started here, uh, I guess the first thing is, you know, why are, you know, why are these stats so important? Like, what's the, what's the big deal with this stuff? I kind of hinted on it at the beginning. I said that I was always interested in data and, uh, you know, the big picture. Um, you're right. You always have to take these numbers with a grain of salt uh, when trying to assess your own chances, only because it doesn't give you what your actual outcome would be, but it does give you an indication of what the big picture is. Um, it's sort of like getting a roadmap, a, a bird's eye view of like what you're getting yourself into. And I think I mentioned this earlier at the, at the beginning that, you know, when you do an ATIP request with the government of Canada, uh, they do dump a lot of information on you. Um, you're lucky if it's a, you know, a readable PDF. Uh, sometimes they might even just mail a copy to you and it might not be OCR'd and you have to do it yourself. Um, and the challenge with uh, statistical tables is that sometimes they don't actually get captured very well by um, you know, optical scanners on uh, whatever software is out there, for example. So it took us a while to actually translate this almost 2000 page behemoth uh, into an Excel sheet. Um, it's now available for us. Um, and what we do with it is basically, uh, we can pivot by DLI or by country. Um, and I also um, you know, saw an ATIP disclosure about the most common reasons for uh, you know, uh, refusals for study permits. and. Uh, you know, kind of cross-referenced it with certain DLIs in their top source countries. So we're going to get into that today. So that's the problem with raw data, Mark. Um, I'm not sure what your experience is with ATIPs. <laughs> Hit and miss, my friend. Hit and miss. <laughs> you know, when, you, when you're dodging yeah. everything that's redacted, I'm surprised they didn't just redact the whole page before they gave it to you. You know, the, 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 the reality is that's what they consider to be um, undisclosable uh, is um, it's a definite moving target. And uh, so, yeah, definitely hit and miss. Yeah, so so that's another level of difficulty when asking for information from the government. It's the transparency. But, uh, you know, more to the point today, uh, what is the implication of having access to information like this uh, for clients, for example? And from the perspective of us practitioners, for example, if you're an immigration lawyer or a consultant, um, what is it like to be able to give advice if you have access to the big picture? And if you'll just move on to the next slide, Mark, um, what we did to it, what we're doing today essentially is we're going to uh, highlight a few DLIs that we pre-selected. And this is a very subjective list, guys. We tried to be pan-Canadian, um, but uh, we also tried to be very representative uh, of, uh, you know, the big ones, essentially. We have two universities, and we all know that the bulk of applications these days for um, study permits for international students, obviously, would be for uh, colleges. So um, we pre-selected the following. I, I, had to, I had to pull this up, okay? Let me just adjust this a little bit here. It's kind of going over, but this is one of the questions. May I know the rate for Algonquin College, please? <laughs> And, and yep. so, unfortunately, Algonquin didn't make our list. It was close. 
Assiniboine Community College was there. So we're not going to go through and be able to respond <laughs> for those of you who are looking for the, 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 you know, the approval ratings, we're, we're not going to be able to address that in the video, but I just wanted to tackle that head on. Um, but, but the reality is we do have the data. And so Lou is the gatekeeper of this. He's put all this together. So like I said before, if you, if you do have questions, I recommend you book a consult with Lou and then he can actually help you work through this stuff. Um, but, uh, yeah, I just wanted to bring that up. Thanks, Mark. Um, yeah. So if we have time later, maybe we can, you know, pull it out. Let's, okay. We, okay. Uh, there there you go. See, right there you go. This is, this is dedication. So we may just be able to do that for you, Vu. So hang in there. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let's, let's move on. So maybe we can accommodate it. So we're, we're going for two universities, the University of Waterloo, Toronto, and then Centennial College, New Brunswick Community College, Lethbridge, Cinnaboyne, and Niagara. Some of the bigger colleges from across Canada. And I'm just going to fly over the next few slides. But what I really want to impress upon everyone is where uh, these DLIs are essentially sourcing most of their applications. And if you look at the horizontal axis, you'll see the raw number here, zero to, uh, let's say, 3,500 applications coming in from China with not even a close second from India. Then yeah. going on to the next slide with the University of Toronto, for example you'll see that the applications are over 5,000, but that gap really increases yeah. substantially. Yes. It's like a threefold essentially for China versus India. Now pay close attention to those top two countries. As the next few slides, you'll see that when we start looking at the colleges, you'll see that the top source becomes India and then China drops from the list at yeah. Centennial College while well, seeing them at number five. Their close second, the Philippines, is not even close. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, take it for what it means. But basically, yeah. we're looking at the range of 2017 to 2020 uh, during the pandemic here. We're going to break it down a little further. But if you can move on to the next few slides, Mark, you'll see that you, ha you have New Brunswick. Same phenomenon. You'll see India at the top and then uh, a bit of uh, diversity there. Like uh, yeah. you'll have Nigeria, Cameroon, Brazil. And then you're looking at the, uh, you know, Cinnaboyne and Lethbridge, for example, it's still India. So um, what's the feel like over the ground over there um, at Lethbridge, Mark? Yeah, it's interesting. Like when I think about Lethbridge, because this is obviously my, I went to, I went to the college there before I went to the university to complete my teaching degree. And I, I remember for years, um, Kenya was a really important source country because we had a lot of young Kenyan runners that came and joined the track team. And so it, then the college got on the radar of many communities in Kenya as a place to apply to. And like any any of the study permit processes, like I said, India, if it's not at the top, it's, at, it, you know, it's, it's near the top for, you know, the vast majority of schools. And when we look and as we dive in a little bit deeper, you know, as we talk about, okay, well, what does this mean? Why are there so many people applying for study permits? And that intersection between express entry and, and the study permits, we know that almost 35% of all express entry um, PR um, landings are, are from India, which is to a large extent reflective of what we're seeing here on the study permit side. So there's some definite correlations there. We talked about off-camera uh, CRS arms race 
so yeah, to we speak. Did. Uh, you know, you <laughs> try to maximize all the possible points that you can get, essentially. And as the government tweaks uh, the program over the next few years, as the government adjusts our immigration program, it'll be interesting how it would impact express entry and you know down the pipeline uh, study permits as well. So uh, I'd like to move on to the next uh, set of slides. If you don't mind, I think it's the next one after this one. You bet. So and you can see, you'll see, I'll just, I'll just flip back. Just give me one second, Lou. I just want to reiterate sure. the difference because some people may not understand. So first two are universities. These are like, mm. you know, four year, whatever degree granting institutions, public institutions, um, University of Toronto is the same way. And then the colleges are traditionally, you know, yes, you do have some, you know, degree granting colleges to some extent, but generally speaking, these one year, one or two year programs for the most part. And, uh, and, and so that's the difference between, you know, university and, and college. And so, and these are all community colleges to, you know, to a large extent. Um, I, I don't know, are any of these private? I can't remember if, if any are private, if they're all public colleges. Um, do, do I believe we pre-selected public ones. Uh, yeah, for, we chose for, public for, for a reason. I'll tell you why, because I didn't want to get sued by any private colleges. <laughs> <laughs> that accused, accused right us there. of sharing data that was harmful to them. And uh, there's some amazing, awesome private colleges out there. And, uh, and, and there's some who, whose approval ratings are not as high, but we're not going to talk about them. <laughs> okay, so here we go. So speaking of approval rates but broken down by DLIs, so that's a, an excellent transition, I got to say. Um, first thing I want to say is that if you look at the bar and the graph right there and on the screen, we're looking at years 2017 to 2020. Let's start off with the University of Waterloo. So that horizontal uh, line, that's the global average. So remember, if, uh, if you remember, uh, Mark, I was here last time. We also mm -hmm. talked about uh, yep. statistics for study permit approvals by country alone. So that's the aggregate. So that line's going to keep constant for the next few slides, but look at the blue bars for each year for each university. And on the left side, you'll see pre-pandemic average at 88% for the University of Waterloo. And then during the pandemic, they really suffered. I think it's not just um, the University of Waterloo, it's generally across the board. But the average overall from 2017 to 2020 for the University of Waterloo is 69%. Yep. Um, Pre-pandemic at 88%, that's a very respectable number. Yep. Um, and then moving on to the next slide would be the University of Toronto, where you see very similar numbers. In fact, they have the same pandemic average at 12% uh, for the year 2020. And then the pre-pandemic is at 84 with their global average from 17 to 2020 at 66%. Um, one thing I would like to note before moving on to the next slide is mm -hmm. you'll notice that the average, um, the global average for approval rates generally follows the contour of the approval rate for each DLI. There are certain mm -hmm. exceptions though, and it, you know we'll, we'll talk about them as we go along. Yeah. So next, I believe, is the Centennial College which is also very interesting because it doesn't necessarily follow that particular graph. And um, I think if I'm reading their stats correctly, if I remember the raw data coming out of Centennial, uh, they ramped up their international recruitment at some point. Uh, that's why their, um, you know, their, their numbers are actually going up and down. Uh, so that may have had an impact on their approval rates as well. Uh, but as you can see, 
And as you'll see in the next few slides as well, colleges generally perform lower than universities, at least in this uh, selection of uh, uh, DLIs that we did. So you'll see the pre-pandemic average for Centennial at 52, the pandemic average at 21%, which interestingly was higher than the University of Toronto and uh, the University of Waterloo. Then you have the global average, sorry, the 2017 to 2020 average at 44%. Uh, and next, we I believe, is New Brunswick Community College, yeah. uh, which follows the general trend lines, 39%, 13%, and then an average of 33%. Uh, obviously, you'll take that with a grain of salt because yeah. uh, 2020 was a very, very nasty year for, for all DLIs. Then next is uh, your alma mater, Lethbridge. Yes, indeed. So you'll, you'll see 45% for pre-pandemic, yeah. pandemic average of 12, uh, and then the average of 37 for those four years. Yeah. Um, and you think about it, you know, that's 12% hmm. approval rate. So pandemic average, 12%. And, um, you know, of everybody that submits an application to study at, uh, you know, at, at Lethbridge College, 12%. <clears throat> were approved. And um, mm -hmm. if I can, if you don't mind me just jumping back again, so then the next yes. question to ask is, and you probably, I don't want to kill your thunder, but I, I look at this and I, okay, what does that mean? So does it, you know, what is playing into that? Is it because the IRCC doesn't think Lethbridge College is a reputable institution? Well, I don't think that's the case. This is a, a well-respected, um, you know, community college here in Lethbridge that, like I said, I went to it, my son went to it, and it was a perfect transition to university. But if you go back, and mm -hmm. I, I think we've got that here, right? You look at the source right countries, there. and once again, we've got India and Kenya leading the way. Nigeria is in there, so there's a heavy African influence. And from our previous video that we did, the, the immigration nation on the um, approval ratings by country, well, can you remind people what Africa is like for study permit approvals mm. across the board? It's not very good, especially <laughs> no. sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, we're, we're seeing uh, approval rates uh, going down even to the single digits, in fact. Yeah. So yeah. It's, it's pretty alarming. And uh, yeah. if you'll remember, Mark, we did talk about this uh, in other venues, including the House of Commons. Uh, they they mm -hmm. dedicated five sessions on this. On this uh, I think it's alarming enough to see the outcomes, the differentialities in outcomes is very important. And I'd like to point out as well, when we're talking about Lethbridge, and you're right to bring up the previous slide on Lethbridge, because if you look at the book, uh, you know, the, the raw number for it, we're looking at over a thousand applications. So it's not a weird statistical anomaly. It's just, you know, uh, they, they do have the, uh, the, the numbers to actually justify those averages. Anyway, moving on after Lethbridge, we have, I believe, Assiniboine yep. and Niagara College. And again, it follows the trend line, except for 2017 for Assiniboine. I'm not familiar with what's going on. Um, yep. You know, these DLIs, um, you know, happy to talk to you guys. It's like uh, my email's open. That form is there for a reason. I want to talk mm -hmm. to you and let's find out what's going on. Because yep. I think uh, in the following slides, after Niagara College, and Niagara is also like following the trend line. Mm -hmm. So moving on to the top reasons for refusal by countries. Now, this is very interesting. So what I did was I collated seven countries that were generally, you know, hanging around the top five of yeah, those uh, uh, top source countries for those specific um, DLIs. And 
I was able to obtain data um, about the common refusal grounds used by immigration when uh, people refuse to study permit. And you can see that the winning uh, reason for this would be R2161B purpose. So I guess yeah. let's start to break that down, um, uh, Mark. But before we do, I, I'd like to say that basically, um, you know, folks are refused on the basis of regulatory provisions or even the, the statute. But all that to say is that they're not the reasons. And this is a common misconception uh, when people get refused. They think that the refusal letter actually contains the reasons. No, it does give you an indication as to why you were refused. But the reasons, you have to order them by way of an ATIP to get your GCMS notes. Uh, or, uh, you know, if you're challenging this at a federal court, you can wait for the reasons to be divulged by way of Rule 9, according to the rules of the Federal Court of Canada. Um, but in any event, uh, I'd like to know, Mark, do you have any thoughts about 260? I'm pretty sure you've encountered this. Yeah. So you think about this, you know, when all you see on a sheet of paper is, well, your stated purpose of study isn't consistent with blah, 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 whatever they say. And it's really, really challenging, at least now, as we look at globally how this has evolved. You know, we haven't drilled down into the demographics, really, of people. <laughs> this is... This is the grounds for refusal as established under the legislation. We, we haven't really dived deep into, you know, individuals, human capital factors and things like that. But the purpose, and, and when you look at the purpose of study, it, it transcends so many different aspects of an applicant's life. They can use it as a refusal ground for just about anything. You know, they can say, well, there's a big gap in, you know, when you completed your last studies and when you want to study now. Therefore, I don't feel like the purpose of your study is genuine. Or, well, you studied or, or your, your work experience was as whatever, a cook, and now you're applying to be an interior designer and you're going to school in, in Canada. Therefore, I don't feel your purpose is, is you know, that it's genuine. And so this one is like the massive catch-all you know, aside from ties, ties to your home country, but this is one that's it does not surprise me in any way, shape, or form that it is number one on the refusal grounds. It's like Chinook. It's like a default button that's already checked off, right? On Chinook, I'm I'm just being a little facetious. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't, but it's like the default ground that you have to uncheck if it's not the reason for refusal. You know, when it's setting up your, you know, for the officers within Chinook, and you have to watch the. The video I did with Will Tao on the update on Chinook um, a few months back. So uh, that's that's my thoughts on this, Lou. Um, okay, yeah, no, absolutely. As we see uh, more automation and decision making process, and as uh, more and more technological tools are provided, officers, uh, we'll see a sort of convergence of reasons. But at the same time, in parallel, we'll see a you know a set of more sophisticated. Uh, reasons uh, that are released. Um, we're starting to see this, in fact, uh, when we're getting the reasons for refusals for study permit applications. But you're absolutely right. 216.1b is the catch-all when we're talking about purpose, uh, whether it beca it's because you're changing careers or whether because you have a large gap in your studies or you're pursuing a program of study that's completely different from uh, what you've done in the past. I mean, that's the whole point of the study plan or the statement of purpose or the explanation letter. Choose your you know, nomenclature there. Yes. Um, Critical. At yeah. the end of the day, uh, you would have to explain to the officer and satisfy them that 
you know, your program of study, your choices in life are coherent and that they make mm-hmm. logical sense. Makes sense. The challenge, however, is how do you fit that in, <laughs> let's say, two, three pages? In fact, I spoke to an immigration officer um, and another one, a former immigration officer, and they're saying, like, you know, keep it to one page, quite frankly. Um, and the the plethora of study plans that I've seen, and even those that we help our clients to submit, it's usually around two or three pages because it's least, hard to explain. Yeah. Right, right. And that's being concise. But at the same time, yeah. That's right. Absolutely. That's already very concise. And on top of it, officers typically are expected to turn around a decision and an application. And I believe my um, colleague, Andrew Colton, had this in one of his ATIP adventures. Six minutes. Six. I was off. (laughs) You're off by one, but you're you're pretty close. Um, but but essentially, you know, uh, they have all these tools, like right, including Chinook and including Advanced Analytics, which is now rolled out completely across uh, temporary resident programs, um, especially in the global south. So, what are the implications? That means that your applications for study permits need to be smarter. If you yeah. do not fall in, let's say the um, the logical progression group. Um, yeah. This is what I like to call them. The people who are like, let's say, fresh out of high school who want to pursue post-secondary education. And I think it's worth bringing about uh, Stephen Murren's tweet. I think it was sometime late last year when he was able to uh, pin down some statistics as well. Uh, it turns out, uh, you know, top of my mind, because a lot of my clients come from the Philippines. Surprise, surprise, I'm Filipino. Yes. Um, yeah, so... Uh, a lot of folks from the Philippines who are in the age cohort of 20 to 25, they have a 78% approval. Approval, rate. yep. Yeah, and then you move it up to 26 to 30, you're seeing about 70%. And then after 30, drops down to 49. It's a crash. Yeah. It's an incredible crash. And you see that pattern repeated across different countries, um, especially those that are visa required. And a lot of the reasons really fall down on, uh, or basis rather, falls down on these uh, uh, reasons that you see before you. So the other one that I'd like to point out would be um, assets and family ties. Yep. They're also mentioned there. I think uh, you hinted on this, Mark, earlier, ties. What do you usually put for, for these yeah. things? Yeah, this this is why it is so important for people to realize that, that when you're when you're retaining someone to help you with your applications, it is a massive undertaking for that representative to dive into your personal life and pull out all of the details, every possible aspect of your of your world um, to, to make these connections to justify why you're going to return back home. And it's so interesting with ties because... When you, when you talk about the purpose as well, and they kind of intertwine a little bit, you've got a situation where you're not proving that, hey, this is a fantastic school, I love it, and I'm going to transition to permanent residence. Like you are not touching that with a 10-foot pole. You're showing how this school is so amazing, nothing compares to it in my home country. And when I get this education, I'm going to have this phenomenal job waiting for me back home. And in some cases, Lou, I've got a company who says, yeah, we'll actually hire them if they complete this education. And that goes in too. And so, you know, and then the, the twisted part of ties is, oh, you've got, you've got family in, um, in Canada. Oh, that's a negative. You may want to stay. 
And then, oh, mm-hmm. you're, you've got family back home. Okay, well, yeah, that might be an indicator, but it's not conclusive that you're going to go home just because you have family. Like it's a total double mm-hmm. standard. And then people are in the same situation that express entry forces them where do I leave my spouse and kids behind if I do have family because my chances are theoretically better that my study permit's going to get approved. So it's the separation of family. It's the same thing for express entry. My CRS scores, human capital is really good. But, oh, if I add my spouse in whose language and education isn't as good as mine, I can kiss 30 points gone and I'm never immigrating to Canada. So then I'm forced to list my spouse as non-accompanying, be separated from him or her for, you know, three years, and then finally be reunited in Canada. So, okay, that's my views on on ties. <laughs> right. I mean, it really encapsulates uh, the, this feeling about uh, study permit applications and TR applications writ large, Mark, in my opinion. Um, it feels more like science in that we're oracles and seers um, versus, let's say, for example, if it's an express entry application under the a federal skilled worker where it's almost like it's, it's a science. Like if you hit those factors, you get X number of points and you get in, right? Um so it's it's understandable why a lot of uh, you know applicants and representatives, both lawyers and consultants, are banging their head. I, I remember mm-hmm. in 2018, I went to the um, CBA con no 2019 the CBA conference, the last one that was in person yeah. uh, in Winnipeg, and I believe I was speaking to Cindy Switzer, and uh, she asked me, "So what's the bulk of your TR applications?" And I said, "Study permits." And I think there was a you know almost a repulsion. Uh, in yeah, like, sense oh, that, oh, you're in that industry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it's 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 a uh, wow, like you know, that's a roller coaster. I want uh, less emotions. It's better for my mental health. And uh, yes. you, know, you really gotta like what you're doing in terms of yeah. like uh, study permits in order to understand it. And going back to this table, though, so the ties, uh, we know that it's more art, but it's a question of like balancing off, right? Because when yeah. you talked about family, if you do have family in Canada, that's certainly. A, an advantage if you're doing PR, whether you're doing express entry or various PNPs. But if you're applying for TR, like study permits, uh, it could hurt you. So in uh, my uh, practice, what we typically do is we try to counter it by another counterweight, essentially. Um, And you assist the officer in a way that, okay, I have family in Canada, but I also have family in India, for example. And my ties to my family in India are far stronger because I'm doing this, this, and that for them, yeah. for example. Yeah. So, so those are typically some of the strategies. But the, the, the art comes to the point of advocacy. When you are basically advocating for your client, you need to make sure that the officer catches that in the first three seconds that they're looking at your submissions. Yeah. And I guess one thing I will add If your representative is not taking the time to directly communicate with you, I'm not talking about a middle person. I'm talking about your representative. Then I would run the other way as fast as you can, because ultimately it's that, it's that, that intimate relationship between you and your client that's going to allow you to, to dig out the information necessary to really put forward an application that, that gives you the best chance of success. And unless you have those right. discussions and you're talking about who you are, where you lived, what your family is, what your interests are, why you're going to school, why you chose this school, why this program, you know, all of these things, 
Like it's really, really hard to do that in a simple form that you fill out and hand to the to the representative. So I don't know about your experiences, Lou, but yeah, the, the most critical aspect is that initial sit down to brainstorm. And that's really what it is. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. Uh, your, uh, you as a client need to be able to talk to your representative, uh, whether it's a lawyer or a consultant or their team, uh, especially. Uh, we try to work in a collaborative setup in a sense that, in, you know, um, it's not just us doing your application for you. I yeah. think that uh, you know, model of business of doing law is uh, a bit passe. And it, I think there's a sense of empowerment as well that we give back to our clients or rather that, you know, we encourage in yeah. it from our clients to actually take charge of their file and yes. we're there to guide them from the legal standpoint. Um, but going back to Tyus, Mark, there's one yeah. thing that uh, I, I really think that we should mention, and I think it's come up in some of your episodes as well. TR applicants coming in from, let's say, third countries where they're also temporary residents there. I'm thinking specifically of the Middle East, D- Dubai, for example. <laughs> Right. Right. Dubai. I mean, how do you mitigate those ties? I mean, as you can see from this large table here, assets and uh, ties uh, are certainly at play. And if you're citizens of these countries and you're living in Dubai, for example, where you're not a permanent resident, how do you justify that you're coming back? Right. Yeah. It becomes really, really tough. So one of the ways, obviously, is if the person is, say, a spouse and, and, and they're they're you know, their, their husband or wife is remaining in Dubai and working. Well, obviously, a lot of status for foreign nationals, well, by and large, the majority of it, is all tied to employment. And so That's if right. you were uprooting and leaving Dubai and you haven't been back to the Philippines or Pakistan for, for 20 years, you're going to have some trouble. Um, and so what are the ways that you can try to mitigate that? Well, well, one is to show that, one, you have an ability to return. And that even if it isn't going back to your home country, but that all your connections and ties are still pulling you back there, like a job offer that's waiting for your return, which will resecure the status that you had. Um, maybe you are leaving a spouse behind who's working, who is you're the dependent on that principal, you know, spouse's status in, um, you know, in, in the UAE or wherever it may be. And that, uh, you know, going for two years and then coming back, you have full ability to return. Um, but even then, Lou, you know, it's not easy. And uh, it's no. definitely one of those factors that, that kind of starts to weigh down, can't really show my hand here, but weigh down the, uh, you know, the no side of the equation. That's right. Um, one other thing that I'd also like to emphasize, because if you're working in the Middle East and you're working, let's say, a good job, uh, you probably have a lot of disposable income. Uh, that allows you to travel to, say, for example, visa-required countries, especially the Migration Five or the Five Eyes countries, for example. If you have travel history, very substantive travel history, I think you should be leveraging that if you're coming in from the Middle East. Because while it's not a direct counterbalance to the lack of ties, it does emphasize a positive pattern of, let's say, compliance with immigration rules Mm -hmm. around the world. And that generally... um, can work if yeah. uh, you know in the big picture it, it it works in your favor if there's a lot of it. However, I will say, uh, and I always say this, according to the Federal Court of Canada uh, in Doncor, uh, that the lack of travel history should not be a factor in the adjudication. That should not result into a negative uh, decision on a temporary residence application. 
But if you look at this table, Mark, you see travel yeah. history. Oh, yeah. Well, you look at it, like in all honesty, family ties. Um, mm-hmm. What else do we have on that list? Um, current employment. Current employment, <laughs> right? Yeah. None of those factors in and of themselves as an isolated ground should be sufficient to, well, should result in a refusal purely on that basis. And so, but that's why there's one, two, three, four, five top ones. And you could get a refusal that touches on all of them. You know, um, mm-hmm. you know, they just check it off. Check, 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 check. And uh, we won't even get into the errors in those refusals, right. which, you know, right, there's right. some indication that, you know, Chinook produces almost a 25% error rate in, in the refusal. Um you know, whether or not that's actually substantive or whether it's more anecdotal, but we've clearly seen uh, refusals that are not based on the actual facts of the application that was submitted. So, Oh yeah. I've, I've seen it a couple of times for employment. Someone who is, has been always gainfully employed in their entire life saying, Oh, you're unemployed. We're yeah. refusing you. It's just um, wrong. Do you remember back in the days when, um, an officer at a visa office would actually have like this five page checklist. And if you're refused, they literally just check oh, yeah. off check. what's on the list. Yep, exactly. Yeah. Cause um, I'm not sure if I shared this in your show a while back, but the only country to have ever refused me a visa was this one, Canada. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is this so is awesome. A, this, this that is so awesome. Oh, and it, it really boils down to ties because I was living in Singapore as an international student there. And um, I had a U.S. visa, haven't used it at that point. And I was going to make a beeline to Niagara because I was I was going to New York and to uh, D.C. doing my research. Um, and then I got refused. And really, the reason is dual intent, because I had a pending PR application at the time. <laughs> but uh, at the end of the day, um, you know, that allowed me a glimpse as to like uh, how they did it. And back in the day, it was, you know, in-person interviews still. Uh-huh. I was interviewed in a room with uh, a locally engaged staff and uh, a decision maker. And I think it was a matter of training as well. But it was it was a very fascinating uh, glimpse into it as a layperson at the time. So, you know, if, if, if we can go back to the intro part of this video, you asked me, um, how <laughs> is it that I got into this? This is partly yeah. why, because uh, Interesting. not that, that I got a chip experience. off my shoulder, but uh, mm-hmm. it really gave me a big interest in immigration. And I can't tell you how many times I've spoken with people that that's what truly got them into it is because of a personal, a personal experience interacting with this lovely system. <laughs> Yeah. So, um, yeah. So this this table is very useful because it does give you a glimpse as to the common reasons for refusals. But I think, um, you know, moving on to the next slide, uh, there are implications that I'd like to talk about. Um, and I identified three items essentially from the perspective of an applicant. The first one is how do I prepare my application, knowing the common refusal grounds? Um, so we already know that it's about the purpose. So. I can't state this enough, Mark, and I'm pretty sure you do this for your clients as well. Your study plan. Your study plan is your golden ticket. It needs to be perfect. I mean, really, realistically, it's yeah. very hard. It's a very subjective piece of document, but you really need to capture um, the attention of the officer in the first eight seconds. And as a sidebar, not sure if you uh, you know this, um, 
Turns out that uh, the human attention span has reduced further <laughs> since 2012, That's from so 12 surprising. seconds down to eight. Eight. Yes. So what you're saying is the background on our video here with the little moving orbs, maybe that's not so good for maintaining <laughs> attention of the people watching this video. <laughs> oh, I'm pretty sure you're you're doing a great job in uh, getting, you know, if anything, I can do this and just like get everyone's attention <laughs> back centered into us. But uh, in all awesome. seriousness, though, like what you would like to do in your study plan really is to make sure that literally the first eight seconds that an officer is reading that document that they understand your theory of the case your your thesis statement has to be up front in legal writing mark um you know not to <laughs> relive our, our law school days but yeah. they teach us this thing called point first writing writing so you want to get your point across the the you know across the medium of communication right away uh, and if you don't, if you fail in doing that, then the officer is going to doze off. And think of it from their perspective. They're processing hundreds of applications each day. And if you're doing that repetitively for eight hours, of course, you're going to you know, oh, lose yeah. your attention and your, yep. everything looks like it's the same, right? So you yep. really need to be able to summarize your application right there. And, and there's a, you know, a quick tidbit of a tip, um, you know. We already know those common reasons. Use those as guideposts to say why you're not, not uh, you're not uh, a problem in terms of like assets, for example, or family ties, for example. Um, I like to put things in a table, for example, or in bullet points, just because from a visual standpoint, they're easier to understand. Yep. Um, now, I think Will has already tweeted about this. Uh, IRCC does use uh, another tool. Um, can't remember the name of it for mm -hmm. the life of me, but it's almost like har uh, uh, OCR that harvests uh, information from your uh, applications and puts it into GCMS or whatever tool that they have. So you want to make sure that whatever you're submitting to immigration as well is a clear copy. Yeah. Because if it's not, <laughs> it's probably not going to be lifted and put into their tools to process. And I guess uh, before I move on, what are your other tips in terms of like, uh, you know, uh, preparing a study plan, Mark? Yeah, well, you know, it goes without saying that, like I said, if you're stating anything in your application, you better be prepared to prove it. And um, mm -hmm. it's always a challenge right now, because when we know that the office ha officers have so little time to look at applications, it's important to understand that sometimes you almost have to prepare your application as if you're going to have to go to federal court. So when we look at these refusal refusal ratings, you know, where even in the best of circumstances, some of the top schools, you know, they're, they're 30, 40% or lower. You have to understand that there is, you know, I don't think there's any, you know, any little ATIP we're ever going to get that says we're only going to allow so many study permits through India for this year hmm. and so many study permits through, through this visa office. We're not going to find that. But I'm sorry, you know, I'm just not, I don't believe that something like that doesn't exist, you know, where there are mm. some, you know, internal controls that they're, they're not targets, which in the old days, there used to be targets. So they, these, these guidelines that they have play a role. And if they're looking for reasons mm. to refuse, um, sometimes those refusals are just not correct in law. So when we're submitting any of these applications, we make sure that we really are preparing it 
to be challenged, you know, in court. And we're setting mm-hmm. it up to remove the discretion of an officer, you know, down to virtually nothing. So if there is a refusal, wow, like they're going to have to really, really stretch it and we're going to be able to challenge it. And in the world of, you know, increasingly um, prevalent leave applications, the Department of Justice lawyers are over, getting overrun. And, uh, you know, so to, uh, that's one thing, I guess, Lou, when we go through and we provide, you know, we put these packages together, they're probably three times what they used to be. And uh, mm. all because of this. And ironically, if, the, if I feel like I have to put three times as much information in and the visa officers are telling you we only want a one page statement of purpose. Well, there's it's it's really tough. So I think I heard in one of you guys' videos that that you actually created like the crib notes version. I can't remember if it was Will or you, like the summary, and then the more fulsome application. And is that what you're referring to? It where was, where you kind of have yeah, that we'll, this we'll, is like for the officer, quick reference, this is all the things you need to know. And then here's the supporting stuff. And you mentioned point first right. writing. I remember reading an article from Chief Chief Justice Alaskan, who was an old Chief Justice. And it was called "Forget the Windup and Make the Pitch," and it's it's mm-hmm. like a baseball reference, which which is the same. So, don't build up, build up, build up to what you want to say. Just say it, and then support it with whatever you can, right? And that's how you approach it. So, just throwing it in this standard statement of purpose, purpose that a representative has used for the fifteen, you know, hundred other study permits that they've assisted with, is not effective anymore. It really has to be a tailored approach that yes, you're hitting on each of those levels, but it has to relate directly to the individual. And you can't just throw out generalities that, you know, I love this school. It's so wonderful. The campus is phenomenal and it's really popular and you know, who cares, right? It's like this school is going to help me because it relates to my previous history and my interests. And it's in line with where I want to go. And like I said, I can't emphasize enough. It's going to help me get this job back home and it's going to set me up and make me more competitive to advance my career at home, not in Canada. Absolutely. Again, it's an art uh, when, when it comes to this, as opposed to express entry where you hit the factors and you're done, you get the points. So uh, it is uh, a little bit more frustrating. I mean, at, at, at a certain level, uh, pre Chinook, uh, let's just say like before us knowing about Chinook and all these tools, um, there was a certain assumption that we want to be very concise in our submissions to begin with. And that really the purpose of council subs is to prepare for the eventuality, the possibility that, um, you know, you get refused. So you can go to federal court and have legs to stand on. But now that we know these things as representatives, I think it's incumbent on us to actually make that advocacy even more stronger, that uh, style of advocacy, I like your reference to a rep- representative who's done this 1,500 times. But in truth, a lot of those lessons may not necessarily be applicable to how things are run as we know it right now. Yeah. And let me emphasize that because uh, our, we're about a year and a half behind with what Chinook is actually currently, uh, we don't know enough. Uh, so we need to be very, very much attuned to what's going on when IRCC communicates certain things. And uh, we need to be attuned to how the federal court treats refusals. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's very, very interesting to, to contemplate how things have changed over the years, even from when I started practice. And like I said, the 
everything has has kind of evolved and grown and i feel like i'm in much of a a much more of a heated battle um getting applications approved than i ever did before and i'll let you in on another little thing lou i think if i knew what the world would look like right now um when it comes to being an immigration lawyer practicing immigration law i probably would have stayed at gowlings and maybe done tax law or m a stuff i'll be honest um you know, at, at the time I thought, oh my goodness, this is so dry. I don't want anything to do with it. I, I love the human interaction. I love being, you know, uh, alongside helping someone, you know, immigrate to Canada where they're so appreciative of what I'm doing for them. And it's a win-win and the officers are not opposing counsel. They're people that I worked with and, you know, I could fix everything, Lou. I could fix everything. There was always someone that I could call. And then it started to change. And really, it would pro- probably like 2011 is when it started to change. And then the smaller visa offices started to close across the country here in Canada. And, and slowly, the ability to have walk-up services closed off. And that human interaction that you have with officers has disappeared. And it's now on steroids now with Chinook, where you know everybody is not just a number. like They're like a character, a letter. It's just... Yeah, it's crazy. They're an Excel sheet row. Yeah, no, I, yeah. I, I totally feel you. And uh, yeah, it, it can be frustrating um, and totally understand where people are just, uh, you know, exasperated with it. You're not the first uh, immigration lawyer to uh, tell me these sentiments. Uh, and unfortunately, I think we're going to see uh, more of, uh, you know, the implementation of tools that removes the human element to it. Uh but we'll see. Hopefully, um, IRCC is listening to the criticisms that it's uh, unfortunately received, but maybe deservingly, quite frankly, yeah. um, in the last few months uh, when it comes to the implementation of tools. And let me be very clear about this. I don't think there's absolutely anything wrong that they are afforded tools, uh, especially yes. technological tools, yep. when um, you know processing application. The problem is the way that it's communicated and the way that it's presented and the way that it's contemplated and executed, maybe they can slowly do this and they need to do this right. I think it's very important that Canada gets this right. We all understand. I think everyone in Canada is in agreement that immigration plays such an important role in our society. And uh, to get this wrong is something that this country cannot afford. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I agree. let's. I'm going to get off the. I'm going to get off the pulpit for a second, and then no, switch on uh, to uh, the other point about DLI. So when yeah. you're preparing your applications for study permits, I think one of the other things that you need to see is if your DLI actually offers supports to you. Uh, you know, some of them I know. For example, when you're preparing your study permit application, offers webinars, seminars, essentially information packages. Uh, on what to do and what not to do, for example, in uh, study permits, contact your international student center because uh, they have people who go through the motions of study permit application cycles every session. It's very important to get their perspective, especially if you're not the, uh, let's say, again, the the typical 20-something fresh off of high school going into post-secondary education. It's very important that, uh, you know, you you plug those holes, that uh, you address those uh, issues uh, before they even become issues. Yeah. All right. Yeah, I agree. And, and you know, if you are going, and here's another thing I'll point out too, and this is where I will be critical of some schools. There's nothing that frustrates me more than schools who rely heavily on foreign students, but don't provide those supports. 
<laughs> you know, uh, schools that are happy to take the tuition money, but when, you know, when the kids are, are trying to apply, and this is where I will, a more reputable university here in, uh, well, in Saskatchewan, we'll, we'll narrow it down here. Um, we're more than happy to take the initial application money for, for, uh, for, you know, someone that we had interactions with and even start their school <clears throat> before they receive their study permit, which many have. And then after the study permit was refused, which we believe was on erroneous grounds, um, they then did not let the person with withdraw or give them the money back for that, that semester. And, uh, you know, that kind of stuff, I'm, support, you know, when you talk about supports from DLIs, oh my goodness, like that school's, yeah. you know, in my mind, just like crash. Like it's right. one thing to, to you know, to benefit from the three times that the tuition that the international students pay, but my goodness, you can't just wash your hands of it. You have to take some responsibility of helping mm -hmm. these students. So that's my little soapbox and I'll, I'll step down off of it now. <laughs> No, no, that's good, actually. Um, and in relation to that, uh, Will actually made a point when he testified at the House Committee on uh, uh, Citizenship and Immigration that mm -hmm. perhaps, uh, you know, the government could look into reallocating a portion of, uh, you know, funds that are provided to education agents, essentially money that's being exported out of Canada um, to actually provide social supports and um, yeah you know, maybe legal aid supports to uh, international students who run into trouble. Um, let's be honest here, non-compliance with the study permit uh, really can deal a devastating blow on an international student's eligibility to apply for a PGWP. This is kind of like a common issue that I, I, I run across now. And what I can say is that not all DLIs are created equally. <clears throat> there are some DLIs there who are amazing, who will Phenomenal. throw every support that they can. Yeah. yeah. But then and there are those private who just and both private and public. So that, that just some, you know, some private colleges are just absolutely phenomenal and some are not. There are some, mm -hmm. you know, public universities and, and, and colleges that are phenomenal, great supports. And there are some that are not. And uh, mm -hmm. that's just a reality. I mean, you know, if DLIs are willing to have that conversation, I'm pretty sure uh, my friend Will, um, even my friend Zainab, and even yeah. you, Mark, would have some yeah. ideas Absolutely. on how these these things can be done. Uh, at the very least, like information is, is critical. Um, there's a lot of questions uh, floating <laughs> around. There's a lot of bad information floating around on the internet. And when people start making wrong assumptions, uh, it yeah. could deal a devastating blow on a, a, a person's and international students' immigration chances. And it all yeah. flows from that one small mistake. Yeah. Um, so I'd like to shift gears here, if you'd permit, mm -hmm. uh, Mark. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I want to talk about uh, gross numbers uh, in terms of like study permits. So what we've seen in, in the course of advocacy in the last two years uh, during the pandemic, actually even before that, was that... Uh, there's a constant and a steady grow, uh, growth in, in international students coming to Canada. Mm -hmm. It's become a very important export product for the country. Um, you know, studies have shown that it contributes uh, over $20 billion into the Canadian economy annually. Yeah, that's B. And that's I think B. That's right. Not million. We're talking about billions here. Yeah. Um, and we're also, 
I think we surpassed Australia as the number one destination for international students. I think this was in 2020 or 2021, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. In, in any event, um, what we're looking at right now is that study permits are being approved or we're, we're taking in a lot of international students anywhere between 500 to 800,000 every year. But then I'd like to contrast that to the levels plan, uh, mm -hmm. which interestingly enough was just revealed last month by Minister yeah. Fraser. Uh, they bumped the numbers up, but uh, from your end, um, uh, Mark, where, where you're talking about express entry and all these various economic programs, what's your sense of it? And how does that square with uh, international student intake in Canada? Yeah. So the big question <clears throat> that is asked, to what extent do international students who come and study in Canada actually want to remain permanent residents? I think the answer to that question is there's a massive chasm between what IRCC thinks and what an education agent thinks or an international school thinks and even an applicant, what they think. And anecdotally, I think you and I feel that, you know, to a large extent, the vast majority of, of international students who come to Canada do want a pathway to permanent residence or have one available. And the math just doesn't equate you know, we when we look at the the high skill group, um, you know, this year it's that's been reduced down to what a little over forty thousand. The TR to PR pathway with students that are already here, you know, or essential workers, you know, you've got what another another forty thousand. So basically, they just pulled it away. CCs have stalled out because of backlogs, and then we look at twenty twenty three. They're supposed to increase those levels back up, but only to eighty thousand. Now, in fairness. There's probably another 80,000 with the PNPs and there's other programs on the economic side, but there isn't 500,000, you know, the levels plans are a little over 400. So um, <clears throat> not all are going through and it may be that there are, you know, artificial or intentional barriers being put in place um, to close the door on students and to require them to, return home, even though, even though their desire is to become a permanent resident. And I'll be honest right now, I have no logical explanation for why Minister Fraser has not reopened another 18 months for the post-grad students that are, that are expiring, their permits are expiring. Um, I'm, I, I, I don't understand why, unless they realize that we can't save them all. And the reality is it just is what it is. And someone is going to have to suffer. We can't please everyone. We can't keep doing this over and over. We have to draw a line and say, well, you know what? It just doesn't work out. And yes, you've paid $120,000, $30,000 for your education in Canada. Thank you very much. But there isn't a pathway to permanent residence for you, even though probably your school and your education agent told you there would be. And your your family has mortgaged your, your home and, uh, you know, back in your right. home country to pay the fees. And um, yeah, and, and so... I guess it's Roy Rogers, an old reference to a cowboy would say happy, you know, he'd be singing happy trails to you. And, um, that's, that's the mentality that we're, that we're seeing. And so pathways, permanent residence, there isn't room for everyone, despite how much they want to, you know, to uh, apply. And it's becoming just as competitive to get those PR spots now as it was to get here in the first place on a study permit. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's my thought. I actually spoke, <laughs> right. I spoke to a journalist earlier today, in fact, and uh, 
they just got data from immigration and they were saying that uh, apparently there's been an increase in uh, an uptick in uh, temporary residence applications, specifically study permits. And uh, what's interesting is that despite the fact that the federal skilled workers uh, pathway is a closed program for all intents and purposes for this year, um, we're, we're still seeing the demand for Canada is there. And Still it's bad. manifesting across different lines of businesses, including the study permit route. Um, yep. And it's, it's it's troubling because of everything that you just said. But in addition to that, because traditionally, um, and again, it goes back to the reason why I show that India was the top source country for all those colleges. And India being, you know, 30 makes up 35% of express entry, um, you know, uh, applications being approved. Um, it talks about the CRS arms race. Um, Even if it's not a thing that's ongoing, express entry draws, we're still seeing CRS arms race, right, Mark? Like uh, people are still working on making sure that they're fine tuning their scores. Absolutely. Yeah. And and like we said, uh, you know, being able, the French language ability is the new job offer. Mm -hmm. And so Ah. individuals that are able to have taken this time and said, you know what? They're not doing draws. Like, I don't know how anyone would have predicted that it would have been, you know, since December 23rd of 2020, since we last had a no program specified draw. But those people who said, well, I might as well start learning French, you know, and have been studying intensely for the last year and a half or whatever it might be, you know, they're, as far as that arms race, they're doing the one thing that can substantially increase human capital without having to rely on some other third party or entity. This is something inherently on themselves that they can do. So that's the world that we're in. Yeah. Hmm. And, you know, it also puts into spotlight the uh, regional programs and the PNPs. Mm -hmm. I I remember when you um, talked about the uh, draw 174, if I'm 176, 176, Uh, Mm -hmm. 176, when we had that 74 cutoff, um, it tanked a lot of PNPs, right? Yeah. Now we're seeing yeah. the exact opposite. Yeah. They're, they're, they're riding high on the hog. Now they've got tons of applicants. There's no shortage of, of, uh, of, uh, of people to nominate, um, you know, some provinces that rely heavily on local, you know, temporary foreign worker flips um, are, you know, the, even they have more candidates that they can imagine. And the interesting part about mm-hmm. the rural and Northern immigration pilots, which I have to assume it's going to drop that pilot, you know, fairly soon. You take communities like Claresholm, Alberta, which is, you know, 60 kilometers from here, whatever, up the road, small community of maybe three or 4,000 people. Well, what's one of the side effects of being one of those cities? It's that you have post-grad students from Calgary and Edmonton and other places moving to Claresholm to take jobs in the hopes that they'll get one of those spots because they don't have another pathway through CEC. And, you know, mm-hmm. these communities are seeing an influx of foreign workers into them just for the mere fact that they have 25 spots for the rural and northern immigration pilot. So this is what we're seeing. Very, very interesting. That's fascinating. Um, and it's also very uh, distressing, I can only imagine, uh, for those who are here because it's a mad scramble. And one thing that 
folks make a, an assumption about when they talk to immigration lawyers or consultants is they know every single possible program that there is. Yep. I think it was someone in the listserv who pointed out that not even the government of Canada has a page where it lists down all of the Everything. existing programs in Canada for immigration. And I was it's... talking to an immigration <laughs> lawyer in the US and he was wondering about this plethora of options. Um, it's, it's very uniquely Canadian. At the same time, it also creates very uniquely Canadian problems uh, from, from the perspective of practicing immigration yeah. law. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Lou, our time is quickly coming to an end here, but um, mm -hmm. I know, I don't know if you had any, uh, at least at this stage, if you have, uh, we've got a few more slides to kind of work through, but I don't, we've talked a little bit about Chinook already at this stage, mm -hmm. but I don't know if there's right. anything, um, uh, anything more that you want to address within the context of our slides? Um, right. We've, we've kind of well, uh, addressed for the most sure. part. I guess one thing I will point out that, um, uh, that I, that I am writing a book with another lawyer that uh, it's going to be published by Eamons on the PR programs, the economic PR programs. And nice. as we've started creating the, the table of contents for that, Lou, we don't know what to do with the PNPs. We know that there's a book out there, a resource that, you know, that is a serial that kind of is updated, but we just don't know what to do with the PNPs and even these programs themselves. Because at the end of the day, I think the reason no one has written a book on it is because they change so frequently. And, um, right. you know, by the time you get it to print, then Alberta changes its name from the Alberta Immigrant Nominee Program to the Alberta Opportunity Immigrant Pro Program. <laughs> and so, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. all of these changes, it's a constant state of flux. And it makes it really difficult for you and I to, to advise our clients who say, look, I'm thinking about studying in Canada and I may pursue permanent residence. What pathways do I have? And you and I are left with the reality that, well, um, this is the way it is as of today, but everything could change tomorrow. And so people are, are, are banking, you know, thousands of dollars on a plan that they just are not sure if the end result is actually going to be there available for them. So um, I would say two things about that. And I think I already um, made reference to it at the beginning. I like the big picture. I like big data. Big data won't give you a specific answer, but it will give you a sense of where things are going. Mm -hmm. Look at the general economic conditions of Canada. Uh, you know, when you're applying for study permits, is it your true intention to actually just study? Or do you have plans to study and potentially open up opportunities for, uh, you know, permanent residencies? One thing I would say in that point, on that point specifically, is that we're no longer in the, you know, 2011s when, you know, it was practically handed to you on a silver platter. Yes. Not necessarily true, but, yeah, but it was relatively a lot speaking to what it is. Absolutely. Um, so it is very important that you know what you're getting yourselves into. Don't get, you know, oversold by um, agents who are basically marketing Canada uh, on the behalf of the government of Canada to come to Canada so that you can spend your tuition money on the hopes of uh, getting permanent residence right off the bat. That's not a thing that happens anymore. Um, and then, you know, on top of that, even on the front end of study permits, you spend a lot of money to actually just get to that. And uh, at that point, you may still get a refusal, even if you have the best application that you can come out with. And at that point, you really want to 
look at your options. You really want to get the right information. And I guess I'm going to wear my sales cap here and do yeah. a little bit of marketing, Mark, with your permission. Yeah, absolutely. This is where people like Mark uh, come into the picture, people like Will and us as well, um, in terms of like providing that advice, that legal information that you will need in order to you know make sure that you have a plan, even if you know that things are constantly changing and shifting around. Uh, and one final point in respect to with respect to uh, statistics, you know, keep in mind that these things do not uh, determine an outcome for yourself. At the end of the day, it will be your own application that determines that outcome. And if you're somehow the victim of a processing quirk, um, as we are slowly discovering now, uh, that's the importance of having immigration counsel by si by your side, yeah. because there are tools, there are recourses that you can take if you truly want to go this way. Yeah. That's that's really really good advice, and that's a nice segue into alternative forms of assistance that you can receive. And we talked a little bit about this oh, yeah. at the beginning, but I'm just going to ship over here to the website, and you can see um, Lou is uh, he has a uh, DOI boot camp for study permits. Um, you know, that's a class that's held via Zoom uh, that's designed to kind of help you execute your own study permit pathway to Canada. And so definitely go head over there. There'll be some links in the descriptions. Um, if it's not there, you can go to the YouTube uh, video here on the Canadian Immigration Institute and also have access to that. I also want to remind everyone, if you haven't gone over to Lou's and Will Tao's um, uh, their their podcast, which is as much as anything right now, there it's a video component to it up on the YouTube channel. Um, in light of all circumstances, definitely head over there and subscribe because. And let's see here if any any since we've got you on here, oh, you got four new subscribers. That's great. You guys need to get over there and subscribe to this because there is really. A, an unbelievable amount of content. It's not just high level stuff like we're talking here. There's a lot of really, really essential tips and strategies for all kinds of things. And yes, there's a, a heavy focus on helping international students and and uh, just tracking what's happening with um, with Chinook and, the, and these other uh, tools immigration is using to process applications. And I've told people repeatedly, Lou, that it's the most important question um, that anyone can ask when they're filling out an application form is why. Why are they asking this question? And so many people just don't think about it, don't turn their minds to it. Because what we teach in our courses, and I know, Lou, you'll teach in yours, is, is the why. And if we know why, then we know what to put in that particular box. And when we're fighting for characters and, you know, we often people just don't understand. And as a former immigration, um, uh, you know, working as an immigration officer, the officers see things through a different paradigm than an applicant. And if you are not understanding how they're looking at it, sometimes answers you think are perfectly correct and accurate can result in, in refusal. And even words you use, right, that are flagged within mm -hmm. Chinook that are pulled up and, and loops you into a, you know, a tier that you never should have been in just because of how you describe something, which may or may not have been a, an adequate reflection of the realities. So thank you so much, Lou. And I just realized that um, as we're recording, this is the one challenge with lives. We went a little bit longer than anticipated. And so I'm a little bit late for one of my follow-up consultations and uh, that's okay. They'll, they'll, uh, it's, it's my banker. So that's not a problem. But, um, but I know there's a lot of people that were asking questions here that we didn't get to. Um, those of you who are asking questions that were outside of 
the context of, of, of our topic today, which is study permits and approval ratings by designated learning institution. Um, the contact information for both uh, Lou and myself will be in the description. And remember, every Wednesday and Thursday, I go live Wednesday mornings at 10 a.m., live Q&As, and Alicia joins me on Thursdays. We were at it this morning at 11 a.m. Mountain Time. You can come back and get your questions answered. But yeah, head on over to uh, to, to, to lose all the different contacts and information that we've shared. And uh, we'll make sure that it's put into the description. So any parting words, Lou? Uh, not really. Um, but good <laughs> luck uh, in your study permit applications. And if you have any questions, we're happy to uh, you know assist, book a consultation. If you want uh, to have a look at the data, uh, there's an inquiry form, as uh, Mark pointed out, and uh, just reach out and uh, let's see what we can do. You bet. And there is the questions, free assessment, and the consult, which is all on um, all on um, the LJD Law website. All right. Thanks so much. Take care and we'll see you later. Thank you for listening to the Canadian Immigration Podcast, your trusted source for information on Canadian immigration law policy and practice. If you would like to book a legal consultation, please visit www.holpylaw.com. You can also find lots more helpful information on our Canadian Immigration Institute YouTube channel, where you can join Mark on one of his many Canadian Immigration Live Q&As. See you soon, and all the best as you navigate this crazy world we call Canadian Immigration. This episode of the Canadian Immigration Podcast is sponsored by the Canadian Immigration Institute, one of the best sources of video content on Canadian immigration to help you navigate your way through the Canadian immigration process. Head on over to the YouTube channel where there's tons of video content and you can join Mark, yes, myself, in a number of live video streams, Q&As, all designed to help you navigate your way through this crazy Canadian immigration process. When you're done there, like and subscribe and then head on over to the CanadianImmigrationInstitute.com where you can find all those awesome DIY courses that I've been talking about. Thank you, Canadian Immigration Institute. You are the sponsor of this amazing little podcast. <laughs>